Hello, I'm Steve Perino, and what follows is, I think, what we're going to call Tips and Tales Extras. These are the conversations that I have uh, periodically with people out on the World Cup. And since I'm already having these, I wanted to share them with all of you. And today, I wanted to speak with the father of Henrik Christofferson, Lars Christofferson. And this is a man that I've spoken with a number of times over the last four years. I find him incredibly informative. And when it comes to his son, uh, you were talking about almost the male version of Michaela Schifrin. With 14 slalom wins, he's already the most decorated slalom skier in Norway. He is the youngest person ever to win Schladming, the youngest Norwegian ever to win a World Cup race. He sort of put Norwegian slalom skiing back on the map when he won uh, a few years back in Levy. And I think it had been almost 10 years since the Norwegians had won. Um, and I also wanted to get in with him, trying to recap some of the conversations we've had over the years where I've learned a number of things. And one thing I will say about the Norwegian team in general, to me, it might be the highest functioning team on the World Cup. This is a country that doesn't have a lot of FIS skiers, and yet they consistently turn out some of the best all-around skiers we have ever seen. And they have this remarkable depth and it's just been interesting to watch Christofferson work a little bit outside of that system. And certainly there's been some tension of late with Christofferson and that federation. So we got into that a little bit and how he's challenged the system. And uh, along the way, I've also learned a little bit about Henrik and how he was raised and how his dad was very involved uh, in his upbringing. It's not uncommon, of course, on the World Cup. You've got the father of Marcel Hirscher, Ferdinand. You go way back in time. You've got Mark Giardelli's father, uh, who was his coach throughout his career. It almost seems these days that the parents, you have to include Eileen Schifrin with Michaela Schifrin, uh, if you look at the best skiers out there, more often than not, there is a very involved parent. Uh, but you wonder how far you take it. Should every parent be involved in every kid's career? Um, certainly, there's a lot more stories about the success stories of those that have made it all the way to the top. And we don't hear as much about when those particular relationships have gone south. Um, but uh, the way we started out our conversation was... Uh, in the current era, what we have learned about Henrik Christofferson is that he has uh, shown some rather animated finish line antics when getting beaten by Marcel Hirscher. We've seen it a few times uh, this year. And so that is where my conversation with Lars Christofferson began. Have a listen. It's been absolutely awesome to watch these races and the battle between particularly Marcel and Lars. And Hendrik, you mean Hendrik. Excuse me, Lars. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you get involved in there. Do you and maybe uh, you and Hirscher's dad, Fertil, get into it? No. Um, the, uh, but it's been, you know, clearly Hendrik has been, uh, you know, he just... You see the emotion in the finish line, and I'm curious inside the uh, Christofferson camp. What uh, are you guys enjoying this? Are you enjoying the battle, or is there frustration? Uh, it's not frustration. It's um, like when you work really hard over many years, and like the the main target is to be the best. Then I and you you feel that you're done as good as is possible to be the best but you're still not the best it's not frustration you just you just have to work even harder and you get a little bit disappointed this for five ten minutes and like the reaction for from Henrik when he's in the finish like you just uh, like in Zagreb for example when you feel that you have lifted a little bit since the first run and the previous races and then it's full of adrenaline and everything then it's i think it's a normal reaction for like uh for winners for champions they have right. to react it's not that it he's uh he's disappointed about himself uh maybe a mistake or two and that's what's 
disappointing. Not that Hirscher is skiing better, not that uh, uh, Mikael Matt is skiing better. He's like disappointed, a little bit disappointed about himself. And yeah, you need that passion for it to, yeah, to take another step. Yeah, I mean, clearly the passion comes through. That's that's for certain. <clears throat> yeah. Do you think, and I want to move on, you know, I don't want to talk so much about what's going on right now, but do you think that Henrik has had two runs in a slalom this year that have shown the level of his potential? No, not two runs. He had, <clears throat> not in one race. I think the second run in Zagreb was uh, good. Uh, and the rest is like... Uh, it's close to his potential, but not the max of his potential. Not like the best ones from last year. Uh, for sure not. Still a, a little bit... Uh, he can do a little bit better than this, I think. Yeah, I'm, I, I have no doubt about that. And I look forward to the next slalom. Uh, what's interesting about the conversation we're having is we're talking about Henrik being up against a star... Uh, Marcel Hirscher, whose father very much involved, like you have been. Michaela Schifford is dominating. Her mother has mm -hmm. been involved to this level. And so I want to go back to uh, the beginnings of when Henrik was growing up. And we've talked about this before, but mm -hmm. there's a saying in the U.S., if you want to be a millionaire in skiing, you got to start out as a billionaire. And uh, <laughs> that has not been your family's story. And so I want you to communicate how it all started out for you and what you were doing at the time you decided to get into coaching. Um, when I was finished skiing myself, I think I was like 17. Uh, so I started coaching in the club. I didn't even have the driver's license. So I was a coach for a couple of years after I finished uh, uh, skiing and racing myself. And then I was away from the sport for like probably 10 years or so. Uh, and then Henrik was five, six years old and of course like all the other guys in Norway was playing football and had cross-country skis for a couple of years already and then yeah, he needed to do something to do in the winter and then it was just natural that he started with alpine skiing. But at the time, uh, as I recall, you told me you were working, I don't know if you ran or you owned a convenience store, you were a banker, you were, I mean you were yeah. running on a 7-Eleven. Yeah, at that time I, I was like uh, uh, doing the franchise with the Seven Eleven. So yeah, that's and correct. so uh, again, <clears throat> the story in the U.S. is that if you don't have a ton of money right now, it's very difficult to make it in this sport. And I'm curious when when Henrik got started, how much did ski racing cost you to get him involved? <clears throat> In money, it didn't cost that much, but in time, it cost a lot because I think uh, it's a big difference how the structure with the ski resorts and everything are in Norway compared to the US. Because in, in Norway, of course, we have uh, not big ones, but we have like Trysil, Hemsedar, which is quite big ski areas. And then, but around Oslo, there's no, uh, no big one. There's only small ones. And a lot of them at that, or some of them at that time was run by by the ski clubs, like uh, nobody was paid to do the job. You did it uh, as a volunteer. And that's, my father did that. And uh, so I did that too. It was in the beginning, we used just as much time fixing the the T-bar, the, the lights, <laughs> uh, cutting grass and trees and yeah, making snow and then coaching, skiing. And were most of the coaches did they have kids in the program? You know, there's another theme in the U.S. We've got parents that are very involved, yet they're not necessarily the coaches. And you have this push and pull. It's a different era of sport right now. We've got parents that are pushing and coaches are saying, hey, let the kid be a kid. What's the scenario in Norway? Mm, I think that is a little bit the same. I think. But... Um... It's the same. When you, so with the coaching staff that you say is largely volunteer, yeah. are, they, are they fathers that, and mothers? Or yeah. are they just people that want to coach? The grown ones, which has responsibilities like for yeah, the, the training program and things like that, are mostly parents at that time. Um, but um, then we had some young ones, like helpers, uh, who get a little bit paid. 
and uh, yeah, what's mostly parents. Yeah. So essentially, the program costs nothing. It sounds like no, it costs a lot of time. <laughs> Fair, <laughs> enough. Fair enough. And so, at what point did you say, my son, this is a direction that either I want him to go, we want to go, or he wants to go? Uh, I didn't want him to go. That's the decision he made by himself. So I just gave him the opportunity. I, I never pushed him to say, uh, you have to go to the training. Uh, I never pushed him to, to, to make a choice. He made the choice, choices by himself. So maybe I was a little bit lucky, but yeah. I just, have, I just uh, had to like, make it as uh, not easy, but uh, give him the opportunity to, to do what he wanted to do. We, we've had this, uh, this conversation before also about specialization. Uh, there's mm -hmm. a lot of research that's being done, and I know in the U.S. where they say, we know that multi-sport athletes end up being better in their chosen uh, sport later in life, um, yet in many ways we're forced to specialize young because if you fall out of the favored group when you're young, you'll never get back in. And you had an interesting response to that, um, and I want you to share that. Mm. Um <clears throat> I think that you, you uh, maybe when you're 11, from 10 to 12, depend a little bit how developed the kids are and what the kid really wants. Um, but then you should make a decision uh, in which direction or which sports you want to, to go into. But then if you think, if people think that like alpine skiing is just red and blue and just gates and training on snow, it's um, it's a totally different story because the, um, the dryland training in do is maybe in the young age is more important than the skiing because you need this base for the physical the and uh, like for endurance, strength, coordination and all that things and, and then you have to have you can choose you can specialize in one sport but have a good variation in how you train to become good in that sport you specialize in would you call henrik a, is he a multi-sport athlete did he play <clears throat> club soccer uh was he i know you guys yeah, are yeah. in the moto yeah, yeah he he played uh soccer until he was like 11 or 12 years old and then then he he made the choice uh, but he did a lot of bicycling when he was young, both on the road and on the mountain bike. And then the dirt bike, motocross, also been there all the time. As soon as he had a chance, he went to the, we had, uh, they made the ice so we can like play hockey uh, just a couple of hundred meters from the house. And yeah, he did, did a lot of things. When he got a little bit older, he did some climbing. But also the training we did in the club, the dryland training was really, uh, the variation there was really good. So is it fair to say that he was a multi-sport athlete? He just wasn't involved at a club level in these various sports uh, yeah. past a certain that, age? That's correct. Um, and when he, when, I think when we first spoke, I want to say three, four years ago, the theme that was clear to everybody that was watching Henrik come up was that I want to say the number was he had competed in 106 FIS, Europa mm. Cup, then and then a couple of World Cup races, and he'd only skied out in one slalom, which I'm guessing here, but that might be a world record. Is is, mm. is that number true, and how is that even possible? Uh, if you have... Um... I, we, now we talked a little about, bit about the training, like the dryland training, the ski training, and all that things. But you also need to to have an, uh, a theoretical understanding how how skiing works. And um, I I never spoke really much about him with this, but he had a special interest in watching videos. So a little bit of my job was getting uh, videos from the best ones in training not in race uh, from the races but that you can see on tv and record and everything but to get videos from the best ones in training situation that was good and he he watched a lot of video and made himself 
make himself understand how how skiing works, how the ski, the angle of the ski and everything, how it works. Why was the training video necessary versus the versus the race video? <clears throat> because the race video, it's uh, the if you go ninety five percent in the training, may, I think that the the technical skiing is better than in a race because then you're like push a hundred percent, and maybe it's a little bit over the limit sometimes to see how r really good basic ski technique are then you need to watch the training. Ah. And so who were you watching at that time? Of course, a lot of Norwegians, <laughs> <laughs> like, like Omot and uh, yeah, Hughes, those ones. And Svindal, of course, when he came up. So, yeah. And I think it's also as Americans, we are always looking, I am in particular, at Norway. The coach I had on the U.S. ski team, Bill Egan from the 90s, always said, mm -hmm. let's not look at the Austrians because they have thousands of kids in the system and so the oh. system sort of it, it deselects de the worst and you get the best but in Norway they produce champions <clears throat> again you were saying that you've got all these families essentially coaching athletes that would make no sense in this country how is that accurate and how is that possibly working I don't know uh I don't have a good answer to that, but if you take like the Norwegian, like Hughes, Omot, Svindal, uh, Henrik, Buros, Jansru, they don't come from big ski resorts. Uh, most of them are around Oslo, except uh, Jansru. And there are small hills uh, with the T-bar maximum. And um, the coaches can be really tight and you have and maybe the season is from the 1st of January until end of March and then you have to do a lot of skiing like on camps before uh, before New Year in October November December and so uh, also go to the glaciers in May and June and it's not a joke but okay if uh, if one uh, if one day has a certain cost then you can divide this amount of money into how many runs you do so yeah if you double the amount of run is half the price <laughs> we were thinking like that i'm not joking it's right. true yeah so I we sent, we skied I sent my daughter to europe <laughs> recently and and they, <laughs> yeah. they got snowed out and i think it came to 50 bucks a run well that's pretty expensive yeah because we were on 50 norwegian bucks uh 50 norwegian kroner for a run that was pretty expensive and i think it's eight times now like one dollar is eight norwegian so okay yeah well. you i guess that goes back to your banking history you're a little <laughs> smarter with your money yeah <laughs> uh so when you also you how many days this is this is a new movement in the u.s and in some sense it's been triggered by michaela schifrin and Jeff Schiffer and her father, you know, very wise man, uh, Dan Lever in the United States, has also done these studies. And they said, basically, if you look at the best skiers in the world at an age of 12, 13, 14, 15, 150 days on snow a year, which is very difficult to accomplish, A, from a, from a physical standpoint, just getting to the snow, and B, from an economical standpoint, most resorts mm -hmm. are not going to afford more than 100 days of skiing if you went every day. Yeah. What did you guys do growing up? How much we skied? Yeah. Omar Hendrick skied? Yeah, Hendrick, when, you can throw yeah, how when much Yeah, when he was like 12, 13 years, we said that from the 1st of May until the first races, who normally was like... Um, uh, beginning of December, he said 50, 55 days from 1st of May until mid-December. Okay. And that's not unlike a World Cup skier for a long time, and I think the number has gone up, uh, 50 days before the season started, and the season uh, beginning is different in some places in the world, but that's about normal. So at the end of the year, how many days on snow would he have been at age 13? What was your maximum number? Nah, uh, I'm not sure about that. But one thing I'm sure about, when he was like 15, the year before he was a fist racer, then uh, it, was a, it was twice that. The, the 1st of January or the 3rd of January, I think he had 100 days from the 1st of May until yeah, 3rd of January. 
So it, when he was like 14, 15, it was uh, a lot because then you are more physically prepared and you're more mentally prepared to, to train more than when you're 12, 13. In a day of training, so, how many runs were you taking? I mean, what's, what was we, the, if you had the conditions? We always uh, we always had uh, one session in the morning and one session in the afternoon. But how many runs? I don't I, I don't remember. But for sure, eight to ten runs uh, in one session, and then okay. two sessions a day. That's how you knock the price down. Um, yeah. <laughs> and and so going back to I don't know if I if you have fully understood or I'm fully satisfied with my answer to how is he was he so consistent when he arrived on the world cup in slalom i think the, the most important to, to to achieve that uh, stability as to have uh, a really good uh, basic ski technique uh, a good uh, uh, be in a good physical shape uh, and also to have this theoretical understanding of how skiing works this, this combination of these three i think it's the Mm, that's what I think is the answer to his stability in the fist races. I think at one point you told me also that uh, the philosophy of the club that you were a part of was you always hiked. If you went out, you always hiked. Yeah. To skip a gate, it's uh, you're not allowed. Just to skip a gate to get uh, better, to ski better in the rest, you have to fix it or you start again. And it's not to slide down and take the T-bar up and then start again. You Then you walk up or you, yeah, and then start where you missed. Mm -hmm. When I see, when I saw like uh, the warm-up in Adelboden before the slalom yesterday, I, I was a little bit surprised how many just skip a gate and go in again. You have to fight for it because you're sure when you are in the race, you have to fight for it to get back into the line and into the timing and everything. So... It's really stupid just skip a gate or two to have a good feeling because then you do the same in the race and then you're out. Uh, um, I don't, I'm not going to keep you too long. I know you've got dinner, but I did. I wanted to get also into if you can help explain uh, where you guys are with the Norwegian Federation. And that's uh, you guys have certainly challenged the culture of the Norwegian Federation right now. And it's actually... As I've watched from the outside looking in, it's one of the things I've admired about Norway is this, what feels like an incredible team environment. For those of that watch from the outside, everyone pays lip service to the fact that we are a very close team, but somehow or another, Norwegians have taken it to another level. Um, and I don't know if you think it's fair, but it's certainly you and Henrik have challenged that uh, sense of team. Where do you guys fall on that right now? Uh, at the moment, it works uh, works pretty good. But uh, if if everybody is happy about everything all the time, you don't develop. Somebody has to ask questions. How somebody has to want more. And <clears throat> if you think of the history of the alpine skiing in Norway, <clears throat> the especially the. Uh, it's been a while since there was a GS and slalom racer. It's a bit more about the speed. And the resources you need to do speed is quite higher than the resources you need to do some technical training. So, um, yeah. Uh, uh, at the moment, it's, it's, it's working fine. But you have to ask questions sometimes to, to develop. If you, if you accept everything as it is, then there's no development and things the, the one area of course i mean we've all followed it um you know pushing to get a personal sponsorship versus the team sponsorship which is very so for the people that are listening that may not fully understand it's in most teams around the country or seriously around the world you can have your own headgear sponsor you can pull in money from the outside in norway and i believe also in sweden mm -hmm. it's different Right. So yep. Telenor is the team sponsor. So the money goes back to the team. That yep. is one element that you also have challenged with trying to get your own headgear sponsor uh, with <clears throat> Red Bull. Will you continue to push in that direction? And may just kind of talk about what that means to you. And if you think that is a value that the Norwegians should stick with being yeah, but sort of all team. 
Yeah, but this is this is not the facts that you tell me now. But the, because the fact is that uh, if uh, the Alpine Committee in Norway uh, last year they they wanted this deal that Henry could have the deal with Red Bull and mm-hmm. Axel had the deal with Red Bull, yeah. and they will pay uh, a substantial amount of money back to the federation, and then the the Telenor didn't uh, they would not reduce their amount of money that then they sponsored the federation with. So, in fact, the the financial situation would have been much better if Hendrik had a sponsor agreement, helmet sponsor agreement with Red Bull. So, in other words, what percentage was Red Bull... Uh, how much did the Norwegian <clears throat> Federation lose out on by stymie, stymieing that deal? Uh... Probably, I'm not so fond of speaking about amount, but it was okay. substantial, a lot. So he, Hendrik was not taking away anything from from the federation, because he would like put more money into the federation. So it's that's why it's so difficult to accept. And so, what was the reasoning for the? That is not totally clear to me. Was it simply? The reason that they rejected the sponsorship a matter of the, Al- the, the Alpine the Alpine committee wanted this deal to go through and Telenor was happy with the situation. They could use Hendrik in other uh, commercials and things like that, which they do with Axel. Uh, so for them it was was okay and mm, but the the main board of the the ski federation didn't want it to go through because of principles okay but it's a little bit strange since there's already one alpine skier who has it and if you take the free ski uh now it's three of them there so right yeah it's a (laughs) little if it's been no one then it's of course then it's a principle and easier to accept but when they say it's a principle and it's not then it's a little bit difficult to accept understood Hmm. but uh at this point what are the what are the benefits? We've spoken a little bit about that, but you know, you look at Lindsey Vaughn, you look at Christofferson, um, and you take in how difficult the travel is. Uh, it does seem like the Red Bull athletes flying around on the private jet from one venue to another. That's a, that alone seems like a competitive advantage. Is Henrik part of that? And do you agree? Mm, yeah, of uh, of course that is an advantage. You save a lot of time. You save a lot of energy. You can use the time, the travel time you do by car. You can use by restitution or train. And is there more to that program? It it, it does seem like a program that has <clears throat> managed yeah. the best athletes in the last era of skiing. Yeah, to, uh, on the men's side, it's been Tirol now. It's uh, Hirscher is there, Hendrik is there, uh, the Italian Danieler. Um, oh, don't remember is his it, name. Is it Innerhofer or Paris? No, no, Paris. Yeah. Paris. Paris. Dominic Paris, yeah. <clears throat> so, yeah, and it's, yeah, and um, physiotherapist. You get you, Hendrik lives in Salzburg, and the headquarters from Red Bull is in Salzburg. So, for the dry nail training, it would be an advantage. So, yeah, you the the what the Norwegian Ski Federation offer it's it's good, but it could have been even better with this uh, this extra from Red Bull because it's no no chance that the federation can supply. Uh, all the Norwegian races were the same that that Red Bull do with the best ones. It's not possible. Uh, So what is the future of Henrik as a multi-event athlete, which has certainly been the hallmark of Norwegian skiing? Um, As I said, uh, for a couple of years now, the Super G is for sure something he wants to do, but then he needs to train more Super G. This year we had uh, a little bit in September, and uh, he really enjoys it. And it's also really good for the giant slalom to train some Super G. The tolerance of speed, you you increase that. So uh, 
for sure it's an advantage to do super g and he also enjoys like speed skiing i'm not sure he enjoyed downhills like uh, kids bill and those uh, hard ones but uh, for sure super g is uh, maybe we'll see in kvitfell if if it's uh, necessary to do it this year you don't right, know. so as soon as this year with I and mean, that would be with the overall in mind uh yeah and then or down, maybe or maybe not for this year but prepare for for the seasons to come later it's always an advantage i've done it before so it could also be that depends on the energy level and yeah everything how it how it yeah do you ever we'll speak see. with um uh fertile hirscher marcel's father i mean it seems almost like a <clears throat> You know, you've got similar athletes here trying to chase for the overall. I always wonder whether or not the the parents that are involved with, you know, whether Eileen and Fertile and there's a group of people, even Almot, uh, get together and talk about what it is to work with your own child. Yeah, we no, we don't. No, no. We when we meet on the as we talk uh, on the race day, we talk. Yeah. Two, three times during the day or more so yeah but is there uh, is there information that does he understand you in a way that other people are not yeah i think so but we never like discussed uh what they did when they were young and things like that we uh, we talk more talk more about what happened today or the next days or the next week so yeah it's like yeah just a conversation gotcha one 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 thing that has been notable about Hirscher and some of his recoveries and just getting Henrik by a tenth or two is power and strength. There's been some tremendous demonstrations of power and strength. Is Henrik in a place where he can compete with Hirscher on a strength, purely on strength? Uh, not yet, but he's closer than he was last year. He gained four kilos this uh, summer and four kilos of muscle. So that's also why I think he's way better in the GS than he were last year. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, he's stronger than he was. And, but he's not on the same level yet. But I think you have to take it slowly, not too fast. For sure it's possible to, to gain some more, but I don't think it's a good idea to do it too fast. But then it can affect uh, something else like um, ski technique, how you move and things like that. So you have to take it a little bit slow. We tried for two, three years, but nothing happened. And uh, yeah, this summer, <laughs> finally. <laughs> so maybe it's, he's in, the, in what do you call it, puberty uh -huh. <laughs> at the age of 23. <laughs> Not bad, a little bit slow, but uh, yeah. no, he needs a little bit, little bit more power. But uh, yeah, maybe the same, increase the same next summer as this summer. So then, so how much does he weigh? It's about uh, 78, 79. So uh, 80 kilos would be 176 pounds, uh, uh, if my maybe. math is correct. Yeah. I know we're the only country that still uses pounds, but <laughs> that is a, uh, so we're talking about just north of 170 pounds. And yeah. I mean, Hirscher, who's three inches shorter, I don't know if he's three inches shorter, is at least four or five <coughs> kilos heavier than Henrik. At least, yeah. yeah. But if Henrik can gain three more, four more kilos next year with, uh, with muscles, that, then, then it could be uh, really challenging in, uh, in GS and, and so on. So that, yeah. And then you have also a little bit more power and weight for the, for the Super G, so... Yeah, and with regard to that next year and the following year, obviously this is a skier that could go on for another fifteen years. Are you in it for another fifteen years? What's what's it like for? Uh, that seems like a big commitment. It's already been fifteen years. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, for sure, I'm not going to be there for the next fifteen years. No, I'm not. You have to grow up and uh, become an adult, and uh, yeah. But I think when, at this age, and now he's been on the World Cup tour already for four or five years, at the, or four years at a pretty high level, so I think you need some assistance. And uh, you can trust the coaches, you can trust uh, yeah, the dryland coaches, the physio, 
and everything into the federation, but it's nobody. You know that your parents will do what's best for you, no matter what. So it's like a safety to have me there, I think, for him. And it's also a little bit for me as well to know that, yeah, to be there. And I can't say that I'm not enjoying it. I really enjoy it so far, so yeah. I think <laughs> it's we, a good for both of us. Did we, uh, we always see Henrik... Although I, I don't know if I've seen it this year. We see Henrik on the phone oftentimes. Mm. It's not a radio. It's a phone. It's like the, uh, it's like the bat phone directly to dad. <laughs> yeah. uh, are you still doing that? Yeah. And what, what about those conversations can you share? Is it very technical or are you cheerleading your son? Uh, uh, it's technical, but it's really basic ski technique. Like uh, outside ski, strong in the position, good balance and things like that. Really basic. And if there's something special with the course, uh, I mention it. Uh, not a big deal because he used the time, uh, what's available for the inspection. So he know, he knows everything about the course. It's If there's a rut, if it breaks or something, then maybe I tell him. Maybe I don't. Depends. And of course also that you have to like, push now to the limit you have to push 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 so we see yeah. him when the, as you're talking he's repeating <laughs> what you're saying <laughs> yeah 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 uh. it's just a routine that started when he was in the europa cup when i was not following around so yeah the only there was like no tv only live timing and then yeah started to make these phone calls and yeah don't just do it you, you've got to tell the story about so some people will inspect i think uh, i've heard stories of hargeen will inspect it takes him three or four minutes to inspect henrik as i recall you told me he remembers everything and in fact there was a europa cup you told me about he memorized it so well but unfortunately he memorized a different course do you know that story that i'm telling i I, yeah yeah. so he remembers every gate that's the idea uh, yeah, that's the idea. Not only the gate, but also the terrain. So, yeah. So what happened yeah, in that Europa Cup? Uh, that was the uh, Europa Cup in Trisil. And on the... Yeah, that was... The the second run was pretty similar to the first run on the same spot. But um, there was a hairpin in the first run and there was a vertical in the second run. So he, like, he just went uh, so there was a hairpin out. in the first run and a full flush. So yeah. the entrance was left on the first run. Yeah. So he, <laughs> yeah, he just he just skied out like uh, from the hairpin uh, instead of like uh, yeah, just go for a full flush as you say. And then he just I have video of this and he stand on the sign and like don't understand nothing. <laughs> Where is the course? Uh, yeah. So he didn't erase the. Erased totally the um, the hard drive from the, the first, first run. run. No, so that was a little bit stronger than the second run. So yeah, but uh, it's only that time. <laughs> right. So but far, the, but it, it is amazing because I, I don't think that's normal that most skiers today are memorizing every turn and certainly the terrain to go along with it. I think that's. Uh, I think that uh, I know that Janser, for example, in Super G is really fast, and he, but he knows where to go all the time. So yeah, it worked for s- someone to to do it fast, but other ones use a lot of time. And I know that also. Super G is very different, right? I mean, yeah. you don't have as many turns, and you you can't see oftentimes the next turn. No. But then you have to know where to go, the direction, and you need to make out uh, spots so you can like go through the spots when you don't see the gate if it's a blind gate. And uh, yeah, it's um, inspection of super G is more difficult than slalom and GS. Yeah. Um, so I heard a heard yeah. a great story about Henrik's. It was the I think it was his first victory, and it was in Schladming. Mm-hmm. about the telephone call that you made to him in the second run. And because we're not on, we're not on NBC here, so you're allowed mm-hmm. to be colorful with your language, but what exactly <laughs> was communicated in that phone call? I think I said to him that uh, uh, to win that race or the F word or what you call it. 
I, I just want to know verbatim what exactly was said in that phone call because it's become kind of a famous mythical phone call. Oh. <laughs> I go now, uh, yeah, win that fucking race or something in English. Yeah, I think I said <laughs> uh, because so I was in pit stall. I was not there. I was uh-huh. in pit stall. That's a little bit like fertile. I know he doesn't like to fly, and, and he'll call up, he'll call yeah. up uh, Marcel in the start, and ha- yeah. and talk about which skis he's going to use for the second run in Beaver Creek. Uh, yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. This is also a uh, little bit new for Henrik now with uh, with the equipment, and uh, but maybe we should not go into the equipment. But that's also something that's on this level. It's have a big saying which ski to choose with boots to choose with binding to choose it's uh many choices you have to make i mean hirscher has become notorious famous for all of these different things that he is changing on a daily basis uh that must take an incredible level of training and comprehension in order to have the courage to make these decisions you think that's a direction that's necessary to go on the top level, when the margins are so small as they are now, like uh, three, four hundreds to fifteen, sixteen hundreds, uh, yeah, it's it's crucial to make the right decision. You have to do it. If but then you also need a service who is really really onto it. And I have to say that Yule is doing a really good good job with this, with the skis, with the plates, the bindings. So yeah, this is his technician. Yeah. And and so, do you have any good stories about uh, these last-minute decisions that you've made that have gone either perfectly well or been disastrous? On the other hand, no, not uh, we try not to do them as because this is also with experience, and that Hirscher has uh, five more years of experience with doing this. So this is something you have to also do a little bit slow to learn. Uh, to make the right choices. But if you take the GS now in Adelboden, we, uh, he decided to use another toe binding than he normally normally uses, which is less aggressive. and Another and toe piece to the binding? It, yeah, it's a different uh, uh, toe binding. Okay. There are two different different toe bindings from Rossignol. Okay. And the, the, the one he normally uses is more aggressive, and a little bit harder as a aggressive into the turn and a little bit harder to get off out of the turn so he when he saw the setting and he saw the uh, and felt the snow and after the inspection he decided to go with with the one he normally doesn't use which is a little bit slower into the turn and a little bit easier to get off uh-huh. out of the turn and that was a good decision for the first run but then the second run was a little bit more turny and then we didn't switch, but then he should have switched back again to the to like a little bit more aggressive, because he felt that the second run in Adelboden, in GS, it was a, a little bit heavy to turn with that amount of uh, offset in the second run. That's uh, a complicated world out there. It is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, one one i've got to go i'm going to take a hard left here but uh, one thing i didn't ask you about before you let you go is the the group i think it's called i forget the name of it but the the 98 year team 94 18 team 94 18 we've got the olympics yeah. coming up in 2018 tell me what team 98 uh, 90, uh the, team 94 2018 is yeah uh, that was uh, the federation had a really good youth program, but that stopped with the uh, um, '93 generation. So then there was like uh, ten of the parents who decided, okay, then we do it by ourselves. So we picked the five best girls or and five best boys who uh, who 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 needed and wanted to do some extra and made this team '9418. So that the target was. Like we just called it 94-18 because of the Olympics in 18. It was like... Uh, and this these were the maybe athletes the f- that were born in 1994. Yeah, the athletes born in 94. And that's okay. Then we set the target f- 
try to get so many as possible for the Olympics or, yeah, that's why we call it 18. Right. I mean, it's an incredible story that the fact that it's a bunch of parents that got together and the parents yeah. <laughs> did the coaching. And so you've got 10 that started out in this project and we're talking about seven or eight years ago. Is that? Uh, yeah, I think they were like 13 or 14, 13, 14 years old. So it's okay. more, it's eight, ago. nine yeah, How eight, many nine years from ago. that group of 10 are going to show up in uh, at the Olympics, do you think? Uh, before before Maria Tviberg crashed in uh, in Canada, it could have been three. 30% is not so bad. So with uh, Maria Tviberg, Adrian Seierstedt and Henrik. So, But it still can be two. Like Adrian and Henrik, it's possible. I mean, that's, yeah, 30% is an no. unbelievable... Uh, success yeah. rate, I would say so we did something right <laughs> I think yeah. I, I think there's no doubt about it so I'll leave you with this final question about doing things right uh, and this is more for the American audience listening in if you were to run a ski club um, knowing all of what you know now and what it takes to make that commitment and get to the level that Henrik is at anything you would change about how uh, a club is run and how you develop youth athletes to make it to the elite level. Do uh, you mean uh, the way it's run now? No, how, how if you could run a club, if you yeah. were a man in charge of not just only your son, but <clears throat> everyone, uh, and you're, you're going to go back and start coaching these kids that are 10, 11, 12 on up, how would you change it? You need to you need to convince the parents and uh, the children that it's uh, it's hard work, and I also think that children really enjoys development. So when they if you train uh, if you don't train enough, you don't develop, and then it becomes boring. But if you train enough and you feel that you have progression that you develop then it becomes really fun and uh, I don't know the English word but when you feel that you maybe it's master when you feel that you master things that you can you feel that you do things good then you can take one step further and the more step you take the more fun it gets I like it was that was that clear that was very clear well. um, yeah I think that's a message that uh, people will enjoy hearing yeah. That uh, you know, because there's a, there's a, in a sense but, that uh, but all clubs that is, deal with performance versus participation. Yeah, what you're saying but, is that participation at a high level is the most fun. Yeah, because this is also a problem with the the, the topic we discussed a little bit earlier. But it is uh, to specialize in one sport is uh, it's something that's not good. But I think also like if you do too many sports in like organized in a club uh, uh, then you don't develop in none of them and then suddenly everything is boring so you need pick one sport and do what you have to do to become good in that sport but do a lot of other sports but you don't have to do them as an an active athlete you don't have to compete in bicycling you don't have to compete in motocross you don't have to compete in gymnastics just train it use it as a tool to get better in the sport you uh, you have picked and then you then you have the variation I think that's a great spot to end and I know it's uh, dinner time for you uh, so. yeah so, yes. okay so all right Quick prediction, when's Henrik going to win his first race this year? And then you're off. I hope next Sunday or the Sunday after or the next Tuesday, uh, the Tuesday after that again. <laughs> One of those. <laughs> okay. All right. Hopefully we'll be watching very closely. Possible. Thank you very much. All right. Steve. Thanks so much, Lars. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Oh, Lars being a little cagey there at the end. Uh, but from what I've seen him... Christofferson of late, I don't think it's long before he finds the right side of the clock in front of Hirscher. But um, one of my biggest takeaways from that conversation is the idea that all of these great skiers from Norway 
come from these very, very small clubs. And those clubs tend to be run by volunteer parents. Now, it would be great to say that we could replicate that in the United States. We don't necessarily have uh, a high concentration of people that would be qualified to coach. A lot of these small areas are outside of Oslo, and Norway has a higher concentration of uh, I guess people that are ensconced in skiing. So that might be a hard one to follow. But one thing it does tell us is that growing up, right, these small areas where you get tons of repetition, um, that's something we have lost uh, maybe track of in this country. Um, and so maybe there is something there to be discovered, replicated, um, or rediscovered in many ways. You look at uh, People like Lindsey Vaughn, uh, Christina Kosnick, a lot of great skiers come out of the Midwest, right? got their miles up until age 13 before then going to another larger ski area. I mean, even Michaela Schiffer to some degree followed that path. So maybe there's some genius in there to uh, extrapolate. Um, another thing in there, you didn't bring it up, but what he had told me earlier is that the cost of their club on an annual basis was, I think, 800 bucks. I don't know how long, uh, you know, if that led up to the FIS level. Um, certainly there's a lot of other expenses when you're traveling all around Norway trying to get, like he said, 100 days on snow before January 1st. Um, but that number, $800 a year, uh, certainly struck me as bringing skiing back to the people. Um, consistency. I went back and did a little research to figure out exactly how consistent uh, Christofferson was. In his first 135 FIS slalom races, which brings us up to date, he skied out eight times, one of which his ski came off. We saw that happen once. And the other, his dad explained where he remembered a course so thoroughly, it just happened to be the wrong course, and he skied out. Uh, by comparison, Marcel Hirscher, arguably right now the most consistent World Cup skier we have seen in a long time, in his first 135 slalom races, skied out 32 times. And I would argue that's more along the norm. And what uh, Christofferson has done is a level of consistency that is almost inhuman. Um, anyway, with that, I hope you enjoyed uh, the conversation with uh, Lars Christofferson. I always find him a incredibly insightful. I'm hoping uh, in the future to have an interview with uh, one Brandon Dykstrahouse, who spent a few days with Lindsey Vaughn over the holidays as Vaughn prepared for the remainder of the speed season, and also with a French doctor who did the surgery on Veronica Vele-Zuzalova, who is threatening to return to action uh, what would be inside four months out of surgery. And that also would be unprecedented. So look for those, I hope. <laughs>